So this is a good occasion for us to reflect on Dhamma associated with the passing away and cremation of Venerable Ajahn Mahabua. Somebody who clearly devoted his life to the practice and realization of Dhamma. Following in the footsteps of his teacher, Ajahn Man, and then dedicated his efforts to teaching and helping others in their practice. And you can see the amount of gratitude and respect for him, the outpouring of that with so many people attending his funeral, over a million lay devotees, perhaps 10,000 or so sangha. Everybody with the faith in his own practice, Lungta Mahabhava's practice and realization of Dhamma. It's a good reflection of what does an enlightened being realize? And they realize the Four Noble Truths. penetrate the Four Noble Truths, the Arya Satcha Dhamma. This is the heart of the Buddhist dispensation, what we call the Buddhist teaching, Buddhist practice, what the Buddha taught. All the, all the teachings that the Buddha gave fall into the boundaries of the Four Noble Truths in one way or another. There are aspects of the Four Noble Truths, details, any teaching the Buddha gave or the Sāvakas give will be coming under the Four Noble Truths in some respect, some aspect, just as all the footprints of the animals in the forest, they can all fit into the footprint fit footprint of the elephant, it's so large. So all the teachings in the Buddhist dispensation fit into the Four Noble Truths. <coughs> so an enlightened one penetrates the Arya Satchadhamma, meaning naive penetrated dukkha, suffering. Penetrated the cause of dukkha, samudayas, craving, kilesa, attachment, many ways of describing it. Penetrated and realized the cessation of dukkha, dukkha niroda, 
und Nibbana. They've penetrated as to what is the path, Dukkha Nirodha Garmini Patipata, or the Eightfold Path, Atangika Maga, the path that leads to the cessation of suffering, the path of practice. The enlightened beings penetrated these in the sense they fully comprehend, fully understand each noble truth and practice correctly in accordance with that truth. And this is the Arya Satcha Gitcha. Gitcha means duty, function, or work, or you could say the way of practice. It's a duty how one relates to and functions with each of those four noble truths. And the duty towards dukkha, the first noble truth, is to comprehend it. What they call parinya gitcha. This word gitcha we use in Thailand, the gitcha wata, refers to your daily duties. So we say things like cleaning the meditation hall, sweeping and wiping down. This is Gitchawata, your daily duties, or meditation, chanting, Bindabhata, Gitchawata, daily duties. Gitcha, with regard to the first noble truth, is Parinya Gitcha. Parinya means to know to understand or comprehend that something that should be comprehended has been comprehended by an enlightened one fully comprehended understand what is dukkha that doesn't mean just learning with the intellect and that's how we start so we chant Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha. Pain of body, pain of mind, grief, despair, being separated from what you love and like, being united with what you dislike. In short, not getting one's wishes fulfilled, this is all dukkha. We've learned the words, but the enlightened one has actually penetrated, fully comprehended what is dukkha. And obviously what is not dukkha. They experience that, know that. So dukkha is something to be comprehended with the mind, known, fully known by the mind, not just remembered what it is but actually known as dukkha that implies a mind that is in a state there's enough clarity to know dukkha as dukkha rather than to grasp at it with delusion or ignorance and what human beings tend to do is grasp at dukkha as being a self my dukkha my experience of dukkha, my, my suffering. 
It's actually the enlightened one just sees suffering as suffering but without any grasping or attachment. They just know it for what it is. The cause of suffering, the gitcha, the duty for the, towards the cause of suffering is it has to be abandoned, given up. So the cause of suffering is craving, attachment, and dhanha, upadana, and desire. In short, we say desire, wanting. This is to be abandoned, given up. That's the correct duty to perform towards desire, the kind of desire that causes suffering. And as to also be aware that there is what you might call wholesome desire. So obviously we need some desire to, just to practice, to follow the path of practice, to put effort into that. It does take desire. That's not to be abandoned, that's to be cultivated and protected. But desire here... Craving and attachment, this refers to desire that is a cause for suffering. It has to be abandoned. This is the correct duty to perform and then the enlightened one has abandoned it. There's no more craving, no more attachment in the mind or conditioning the mind. Making it a certain way doesn't affect the mind anymore. The desire has to be understood and then abandoned. And desire implies wanting things to be other than they are. So desire, as in craving, the cause of suffering, is where we, the mind is not recognizing the way things are, but it's caught into its wishes what it wants, which is obviously not the way things are. It implies that the mind is not complete, must be lacking something if there's desire, there's wanting. Wanting something you haven't got, or wanting to get rid of something you've got that you don't like, that you're not satisfied with. There's different aspects to desire. It implies the mind is not complete or full in itself. It wants something, it lacks something, or has the experience as if it lacks something. There's always this sense of not recognizing the way things are, not wanting the way things are, but wanting it to be something different. Even in itself, that just that is a reflection that we can apply in our daily lives over and over again. Wish things would be different, not recognizing the way things are, not in touch or aware of the way things are wishing things to be different. That means we get caught into 
hopes and expectations, wishes. Sometimes we feel entitled to get things different than what they are. There's many aspects to it. But it's not recognizing the way things are. It's the mind is caught into the way it wishes things to be and what it wants. And that always leads on to movement, mental movement. We call that, tend to call that proliferation of the mind. All the thinking, the moods, the emotions we get caught into. And then also physical movement, actually doing things. We go off and do things because of our desires. We create karma through body, speech and mind. All of this craving is to be understood and then abandoned. So that's a simple reflection. What do we have to do with craving? We have to abandon it, give it up. Niroda, the gitcha, the, the duty towards Niroda has to be realized. The enlightened one has realized the cessation of suffering. They have realized that through abandoning craving they've realized the end of suffering. A mind free of suffering, free of cravings. There's no more craving and attachment affecting the mind. And the mind does see things as they are. The mind in touch with reality sees things as they are and accepts the truth of the way things are, not resisting it because of the influence of craving and attachment, but just knows things as they are, knows the way it is, the way truth is. The enlightened one has realized this, has realized the cessation of suffering. The last truth, the path that leads to the end of suffering, the gitcha, the duty here is to develop it, bhavana gitcha. The same word we have for bhavana for mental cultivation or meditation. So the path is to be cultivated, developed. That is the Eightfold Path. In short, we say Sila Samadhi Panya. Broken down into the eight factors of the Eightfold Noble Path. Your right view, right thought, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. All together make up the path that leads to the cessation of dukkha. It's to be develop bhavana. So you have dukkha is to be known and comprehended barinya, kitcha. Cause of suffering, cause of dukkha is craving, is to be abandoned. They say pahana, to cut off, to abandon. Niroda is to be realized, satchikiriya, be realized. And the path is to be cultivated by one hour. 
Wherever we're at a loss as what our duty is as bhikkhus, training as bhikkhus, it's the duty to comprehend, abandon, realize, and cultivate in these four noble truths as in order. As has just explained, that's our duty. That's our job. Our job description is to fully understand the Four Noble Truths and bring them to their completion or penetrate them completely. And this is what teachers such as Venerable Mahabhava have done. By their good example, we have. something we can refer to it brings up faith and confidence that this practice can be done by human beings can be the path can be developed the end of dukkha can be realized and so on all of our practice then can fall into these four noble truths we can understand what we have to do largely it's developing these on the level of the mind isn't it developing the right view that starts to see our experience in terms of four noble truths so we're training the mind but obviously we train our body and speech as well because they're the external manifestation of the mind and the state of mind what we say, what we do reflects our own state of mind but we're at the heart training the mind in the f- to penetrate these four noble truths the factors of this eightfold path and they arise in the mind even though we also train our speech, our actions, it's the mind that lies behind them. That's where the main training is done. So as we come into a monastery, we're training the mind in the Eightfold Noble Path, training it first of all in sila. So we come to study the Vinaya in all its detail, we always have to remember the Vinaya is part of this training in Sila Samadhi Panya in this eightfold path which is to be cultivated for the end of suffering so the Vinaya is a skillful tool a vehicle an aid to that end to the end of suffering although at first it can seem maybe seems through our own delusions it seems like it's the cause of suffering having to keep rules follow rules ways of behavior different practices different duties we have to perform so we have to remind ourselves where it fits into the four noble truths and see well it's actually helping us to penetrate the four noble truths to understand dukkha to understand and abandon the cause of dukkha and to realize the end of dukkha it's the path part of the path leading to that 
before we came into the monastery, we tend to follow our desires very easily as lay people. We have some restraint on on our craving and attachment. We have social constraints. We have expectations of society. We have the law, what we can't can and can't do according to the law. We have social conventions, say what our parents teach us, what our friends expect from us. So we have certain limits on our craving and attachment or our desire. But it's fairly loose and we have plenty of outlets where our craving and attachment can function freely. So when we come into the monastery, then it can often at first feel very restrictive because of the Vinaya that we follow. We're suddenly having to restrain all of these different desires that we may have picked up out of habit and what we're used to, karmic conditioning. So we have to work hard and that takes up energy and effort and have to be willing to even experience a little bit of the suffering of restraining craving that hasn't been restrained before. But try to remember that suffering is the suffering for the end of suffering because it's part of the path. It's just the normal reactions of the mind once you start to restrain craving Well, the kilesas inside of us, they start to complain and struggle a bit because they were never restrained before. So as we follow, say, the eight precepts of an anagarika or the ten precepts of a novice or the patimoka sila of a bhikkhu, our cravings is being restrained all the time. What we can say and do, we're having to train that and so there'll be some friction there, going against the grain, going against our habits. That friction comes out in ourselves. Sometimes we have little struggles and battles as we're learning to train ourselves in a higher level of sila than we had before. Sometimes it comes out with other people. Sometimes we compare ourselves to other people, say in, in the community we might look at others and see somebody practices, we might feel they practice better than us, so we feel a little bit disappointed in ourselves. Or sometimes we feel somebody practices worse than us and we look down on them and feel more conceited or feel better than them. Sometimes we feel we're just the same as somebody. They do it just the same as me, I can do it the same as them. This is our own sense of self coming up and the practice of sila can bring this up already as we begin practicing in the monastery. Even if we're on our own, we still have can have all kinds of suffering based around the restraint of sila because our craving, we're starting to abandon it, but we haven't fully abandoned it or uprooted it inside yet. So externally we're just restraining it, holding it in check with the sealer, with the rules, 
So even when we're on our own, we can have little struggles and friction in our own mind, our own experience with the sila. So the Buddha encouraged us to develop the qualities of hiri otapa. So it's just a sense of shame. You know, heighten our awareness of what is right and wrong, good and bad. And that gives us more mindfulness, more awareness on a daily basis of just what we're doing and how appropriate it is, how inappropriate it might be, how good or bad it might be, whether we're on our own or with other people. Sense of shame and a refined, ever-refining sense of shame. It becomes more refined, more clear to the mind the more one practices one starts to steer away from unwholesome ways of behavior, say body and speech, because one has a sense of shame, one knows them, this is not good, not right. Otapa, fear of the consequences, an awareness that is pushing the mind in the wrong direction, it's going towards more suffering, more darkness. fear of the consequences in these two qualities hiriotapa they become more refined the more we practice as our mindfulness improves we're aware of what we're doing what we're saying and the states of mind lying behind our actions we start to shy away from unwholesome ways of body speech firstly and then later on mental states that lie behind them we shy away from because as our awareness and our experience in the practice grows we actually see unwholesome actions with body and speech are actually ugly in themselves whether we we're the only ones who see and know what what's happened or whether other people see either way they tend to be ugly there they're not beautiful in the sense of the dhamma and the, the Buddha said, virtuous behavior, keeping the precepts, uh, harmlessness, kindness in our actions. This makes one, one's behavior beautiful in terms of Dhamma. Mm. Unwholesome behavior, say, when one is more selfish, aggressive, unkind to oneself, to others, it's ugly. And as we practice in the monastery and become more aware of ourselves and other people, then this understanding arises. We, we start to shy away from that which is ugly. So sometimes just reflecting on our words or our actions after the event, we think, hmm, maybe that wasn't the best. doesn't feel right. doesn't feel good inside when I remember that. So we start to improve our sila through the presence of hiriyotapa and start to nourish the mind with these qualities. Sometimes it's difficult though because we're so used to holding on to craving and following it. It's so familiar to us, it's, it's, you know, it's our sense of self. So we're so used to it, it's like part of our personality one of the biggest problems we face in the practice, whether it's just changing our habits, 
improving ourselves on the outside, or letting go of craving on the inside. So when we meditate, letting go of different mental states and thoughts. is One of the problems is that we're so familiar with all of it from the past. We're used to it, seems like our personality, and we are a bit afraid to let go of what we're used to because we're not sure what we'll get in return. And we're not sure what lies ahead. And this is why the quality of faith and confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha, in the teachers, really supports our practice because we can hear the words of our teachers and the Buddha and even see the living example that to let go of craving is not going to harm us. It's not going to lead to our suffering. It's only going to lead to our benefit. Leads to our happiness, contentment, peace. And we have to make that awareness, that understanding clear to the mind so it has enough strength and confidence to let go of craving. Because we're so used to it, we like to cling on to it, and we just often we're not ready to make a leap of faith or take the next step because we're not sure what lies ahead. But once you understand the point, once you've done it a little bit, you, you not only can rely on the faith you have in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha and the teachers, but also your own experience. If you've practiced for a while in the monastery, you can refer back to your experience over that period of time. You can maybe start to see if you keep sila, well it brings benefits to you. It brings you some happiness, some contentment, some ease of mind. The mind is not feeling guilty or having regret. It's not stirred up, worried about what it's done, what, what we've said, what we've done. And little by little that realization grows and we gain more confidence to keep on keeping the sealer. We can see even though sometimes in the past we prefer to, to break a precept in some way or other. Now we can see, well, not breaking the precepts keeps me out of trouble. A bit like out in the world, say somebody who might be tempted to become a criminal, when they reflect back on all the peace they had in the time when they weren't acting in a criminal way, if they can see that, well, they'll carry on following the law, keeping the law. When they stop reflecting, stop looking at that, then they might break the law and become a criminal because they forget the happiness of not breaking the law. So in the monastery, we have to keep partly reflecting back on our own good experience that comes from developing mindfulness in our sila and also looking at the examples of our teachers, seeing how they experience happiness and joy of living in a blameless way. No conflicts with others, not falling into greed that leads to inappropriate behavior, maybe manipulating others or exploiting others for one's own selfish ends.
living in a monastery longer and longer one starts to appreciate the the power of sila to bring the mind peace and contentment one starts to have more compassion for others you know once one sees the value of keeping sila and and restraining one's craving one's one's working with one's own mind one can see the suffering that comes from craving and when other people display their craving instead of falling into say aversion or having conflict with them one actually feels compassion because one can see the suffering that craving brings whether in one's own mind or in the mind of others so as wisdom grows and we understand the practice better and what we need to do we also gain compassion we understand this mind we understand the minds of others we see that they're just the same all human beings even animals we all have a, a jitta a consciousness a mind and it follows the same laws of karma so if you train it well then it will bring you peace happiness if you're careless or you're deluded then it will bring you suffering and you see that's just a, a truth it's just the way things are it applies to ourselves applies to other people applies to animals whatever beings you refer to they they're all affected by the same law of karma so as we practice longer and longer then naturally compassion is the the quality that arises in the mind towards oneself towards others one wishes to free oneself from suffering so one starts to follow the the eightfold path more and more with more determination more sincerity and then one also wishes that for others and if they are suffering or or not following the eightfold path one knows that will lead to their suffering and one naturally has a sense of compassion for them all of these kind of qualities the qualities of wisdom and mindfulness sila mindfulness of our sila reflecting on our sila development of kindness compassion or the brahma viharas all of this is like the nourishment for development of meditation yes samasati samasamati can see if we put effort into our sila learning to restrain our craving even if it's difficult even if the mind complains and worries about it not very happy with it at first one can see in the long run this is helping to calm the mind down put it at its ease so then meditation is much more straightforward when we come to meditate what the very first things we're learning is the effects of when we lose our mindfulness in daily life with with our sila because it comes up in our mind as we start to restrain the mind through meditation using meditation object and what do we think about or we think about our sila yeah. what agitates the mind most is when we we've broken our sila or got deluded and lost lost our sila so practicing meditation only confirms or reminds us that it is worth keeping sila and letting go
I would say the most, the strongest kind of craving that leads to break our sila. Of course, the roots of the craving are still there in the mind, and this is why we have to meditate to complete the eightfold path. We need to develop bhavana, cultivation of the mind, using samatha bhavana, vipassana bhavana. Using sila as a foundation, we come to meditate and use the sila to support our meditation. As we put effort into our sila, then to develop samatha bhavana becomes more more of a reality. There's less to agitate the mind. Nevertheless, there'll still be the hindrances that we have to work through. So when we come to practice with the hindrances, the five hindrances. We need to use both our faith, faith in the teacher and the method of meditation, that it has worked for others, brings them peaceful, concentrated states. It's worth putting effort into the meditation object, concentrating the mind. We need faith, but we also need wisdom to see how to get through the hindrances and beyond the five hindrances. As the Buddha always said that the real test of whether we can see the truth or penetrate the Four Noble Truths is whether the hindrances are present or not. And all our teachers confirm that. We're working with the five hindrances to get beyond them. This is why they're given the word hindrance, niwarana, because they hinder the mind from seeing truth. The mind that is beyond the hindrances, the mind that is one-pointed in samadhi, is ripe for seeing truth, seeing reality as it is. As long as we're stuck in the hindrances, then we tend to see reality in a biased way or a warped, twisted way. The hindrances, sensual desire and lust, aversion, sloth, torpor, mental agitation and worry and restlessness, doubt, uncertainty, you know, these five groups, all of them affect the way we see the world, the way we think, our attitudes, the way we understand things. They make the mind biased or cloud reality so we have to use both faith and wisdom to work with them to keep putting effort into meditation to learn to develop mindfulness through a meditation object and keep reflecting on what feeds the hindrances and that's craving again how does craving manifest the Buddha's words, ayoni so manasikara, so unwise attention. What feeds the hindrances is we use our mind in an unwise way. We put our attention on that which feeds the hindrances. So say for sensual desire, it's we keep thinking about the beautiful aspect of something. The different 
perceptions of beauty and desirability of something. So if Sajjan Chah said there's nothing more desirable say than the form of a lady for a man. You can see how the sensual desire arises or you put your attention on the beautiful aspect of the female form whether it's looking in real reality or, or just remembering we remember the signs of beauty what they call subin nimitis super nimitis the opposite of asupa so we remember the beautiful form the beautiful sound smell, taste, touch about a form, about a person maybe, or an image of a person, and we keep giving unwise attention to that, feeding the hindrance of sensual desire. Basically, we keep grasping with craving at the beauty. And at that point, the mind loses awareness of asupa, the unbeautiful, the unattractive, whether it's the female form, food, pleasant things, pleasant clothing, a nice cootie, beautiful things, whatever. The mind blocks out the unattractive, the impermanent nature of it, the unattractive nature of it, and just focuses unwisely on the beautiful side. So if one keeps doing that, well that reinforces that hindrance. If one's catches what the mind is doing through mindfulness and then one can start to decrease that habit and let go of craving in that way and start to get beyond the hindrance of uh, sensual attraction, sensual desire. We have to use both faith Putting, being willing to put effort into putting attention onto a meditation object and giving up sensual desire and then wisdom to also understand what we're doing and why sati sampajanya mindfulness clear comprehension of what we're doing so both as we meditate formal meditation and also in our daily life we can watch the mind and see where with unwise attention we keep going to feed the hindrance of sensual, sensual desire and start to unwind that process. You know, all the hindrances, they have like shortcut keys on a computer keyboard. The mind only needs one small sign of beauty, say, and it will go straight there. It doesn't even need to see the whole thing or hear the whole story just a small memory or a small image or something just is enough to get the mind thinking in that way and thinking leads to proliferating uh, indulging in allowing the mind to become preoccupied with the hindrance so we're learning to interrupt that process recognize the process interrupt it using mindfulness turn the mind back to its meditation object or bring up the opposite, the asupa in, the, in regards to supernimitas, bring up the asupanimita to interrupt that process. So instead of reinforcing that habit, 
we're actually undermining it, making it weaker. And so it's less likely to come up and bother us. And if you've practiced over many years, you can see, well, it can work. You can actually start to train your mind not to think about the objects of sensual desire and start to free the mind from that hindrance. Similarly with aversion, you train the mind in wise reflection as opposed to unwise reflection. Not to dwell on the negative aspect of one's experience or a person or a memory that brings up anger. One trains the mind to go back to the meditation object, to bring up metta as an opposite. Sloth and torpor, one can train the mind not to dwell in it, not to let it overcome, overwhelm the mind, but actually to recognize the signs of it, not as a cause for indulging in it, but to see the signs.